Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have blessed us with a good rest last night. Thank you, Lord, for the morning we've had already. Uh, It's been so rich and it's been a true blessing. And now how thankful we are to be able to gather together once again this afternoon to continue our our journey of, of just drawing closer to you, being able to prepare even more for your soon return. But not only for that day, but to prepare now, today, to receive the fullness of the blessings you have in store for us while we're still here, while we're waiting for your return. We want to receive it all, Lord. We, we want to be vessels that are filled with your presence. And I pray that you would speak to our hearts today, that there would be something that we can learn or be convicted of that will only prepare us even more for your soon coming. So thank you for answering our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'd like to begin by sharing with you the references of a few LNG White quotes that I shared with you yesterday that, uh, that I did not have the reference for. So this time I'll, I'll share them with you. The, the first quote was when she wrote, A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. The greatest and most urgent. And as we talked about priorities, we did agree that priorities are things that are the greatest and most urgent. Um, And so, you know, implied in this this quotation uh, is, is the concept of priority. So the revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our first work, priority, see? There must be an earnest effort to obtain the blessings of the Lord, not because the Lord is not willing to bestow his blessings upon us, but because we are unprepared to receive it. We're unprepared. We're unprepared. And this is taken from Selected Messages, Book 1, Selected Messages, Book 1, Page 121, page 121. And the second reference was one that is in the same context. And this is Selected Messages, page, book one, page 124, where she wrote, There is nothing that Satan fears so much as that the people of God should clear the way by removing every hindrance so that the Lord can pour out his spirit upon a languishing church and an impotent congregation. And I love that quote. And that's from page 124, from the same book. Page 124. And so as we discovered in our last presentation, and I'll recap somewhat what we covered last week, for those who who may not have been, or yesterday, who, who weren't here yesterday, but we discovered that it's really not difficult to know how the devil operates. It's, it's not something that is a mystery that we have to try to somehow, you know, discover and, and resolve. No, not at all. The fact is that the Bible does not hide the nature of the devil's work. And you can thank the Lord for that. Amen? I mean, we can be thankful that we are in a world under the sway of the enemy, and we have a book, an inspired book, that exposes our enemy, that, that reveals to us the nature of his work. And I think that's, that's, that's pretty awesome. Um, selected page, uh, Messages, Book 1, page 124. Once again, I have a new quote. It's from the same chapter, the same page now. 
She wrote, we are not ignorant of his devices. We are not ignorant of his devices. It is possible to resist his power. It's, it's, not, it's not some, some you know, impossible mission or task. No, not at all. When the way is prepared for the Spirit of God, the blessing will come. And you notice how it kind of links the two thoughts together with that concept of preparing. Um, the first quote, back to the first, says, we don't receive the blessing because we are unprepared to receive it. And now she almost reiterates, paraphrases that same thought, but, f- but the flip side of it, when the way is prepared, see, as opposed to unprepared, when the way is prepared for the Spirit of God, the blessing will come. And I believe that preparation includes reprioritizing. That's, that's, part, that's, that's part of our preparation. Taking, taking thought and, po- and stopping ourselves and asking, what are my priorities? What's, what, where, what's my first work? What's my greatest and most urgent need right now? So in the last days, if I were the devil... You know, George Knight, uh, he once wrote a well-known article or book, I think, entitled, If I Were the Devil. So in the last days, if I were the devil and I knew that I had a short time, wouldn't you most definitely concentrate your demonic efforts on anything, to stop anything that connects us with God? If, if, he, if he could just accomplish that one thing, that one purpose to get us disconnected, unplugged with God, he would, he would be triumphant. So in John chapter 10, verse 10, and we looked at this last uh, yesterday in our last presentation, in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus unequivocally tells us what the enemy's top priorities are, and they're threefold, okay? Do you remember what they are? He comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. These are the enemy's priorities, right? But when combined with the inspired writings of Paul, we discover even more detail, don't we? That he comes to steal what? Power. To steal power. He comes to steal power. And and we, and we briefly touched on what that really means. Because in Christ, all power is given unto you. That's a promise given to us. All power is given unto you. Okay, And in Christ, we have power. But then the enemy comes along and he tries to convince us of his lies. Because he has, he has no power against us. He has no power over us. But if he can convince us to believe his lie and we... And we choose to believe it, then what we're doing is we're placing ourselves under his power. We're, we're, we're forfeiting the power that we have in Christ because now we're believing his lie and now he uses that power, the lie, to hold us under his sway. And so he steals power with the lie, you see? And I can't, be, I can't begin to tell how many times um, when people have come to me and said, Pastor, you know, I, the, the, power, the enemy has been so powerful in my life. He's so strong in my life. You know, it's been the most the most effective approach to that kind of, um, you know, request or that kind of burden. That is simply this: let's sit down, tell me your story, 
Because evidently, apparently, the enemy has power in your life because you've been believing one of his lies. You've come to believe one of his lies. And so he listened to their story. They began to tell me about, you know, their spiritual journey and how, no, they, they just feel so sinful. Like, you know, God, God, they're beyond God's grace. I said, wait a minute. But what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say is true about you? And we discover that his grace is sufficient. And that's just one example. And then as they begin to recognize, oh, I've been believing a lie, haven't I? Yes. Then we go through a process of renouncing the lies and verbally renouncing it. I renounce. You know, in, in, the, in the biblical sense, the word renounce is a very powerful word. It's a strong word. It means to cut off. In the Greek, it means to cut off, to no longer identify with. That's the word renounce. So we renounce the lie and we choose the truth. We choose the truth. And then I hear the, the story, the, the testimonies of how, of how something changed. They, 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 feel, they feel that they've been set free. Yeah, because the only power the enemy has is the power of the lie. So he steals power. The second thing he does is he what? He kills what? Love. He kills love. And he kills love. He kills those relationships that we have with those closest to us, including our spouses. He's attacking marriage. He kills love. He kills love between fellow believers. The harmony, the unity that ought to characterize God's remnant church. Well, the enemy kills love between brethren. And then he ultimately wants to kill love between us and our Savior our, and our Redeemer, our God. So he kills love. And then the third thing he does, priorities, these are the devil's priorities. He tries to do what? The third thing, he destroys what? The sound mind. Wow, he destroys the sound mind. And he does that with not just drugs, um, but he does that with false theories or false doctrines or teachings that truly distort, you know, our, our understanding of the truth. And so he destroys our sound mind. And so sadly, we see the results of his prioritized work more often than what we wish we did. Isn't that the truth? Don't we see him stealing power from fellow brothers and sisters, from family members, from people that... We know, we see them stealing power, we see them killing love. And, and these strongholds of pride, more failure, negative thoughts, bitterness, they're all around us, all around us. And just one glimpse of the news headlines, you'll see how the busy the devil has been in accomplishing his priorities. And so, it seems to me sometimes that there are times when the devil appears to be more disciplined with his priorities than we are with ours. You see, because when someone has priorities and you recognize what those are and you are devoted to them and, and you are focused, you're single-minded in accomplishing your priorities, it, it, it hurts to sometimes sense that the devil is more devoted to his priorities than we are to ours. And I think that should give us a pause for thought. 
and to ask ourselves why. Why? Why is it that way? Greg Kroeschel, Kroeschel, in his book, The Christian Atheist, When You Believe in God But Live As If He Didn't Exist. What a title. What a book. He asked the question, who do we believe in more, ourselves or God? Who do we believe in more, ourselves or God? And you know how you could best answer that question? Identifying your priorities. Your priorities will answer that question. Your priorities will answer that question. Who do we believe in more, ourselves or God? You see, the more we live as if God didn't exist, the less we'll sense our need of Him. I mean, that's an obvious progression, right? And the more we forget Him or not recognize our need of Him, the less we'll expect His return, right? I mean, the less we live as if He didn't exist, the less, the more we live as if, you know, that we don't need Him, and we go through our days self-sufficient and self, you know, or you know, independent, the less we'll expect his return. And the more we go indifferent to how soon he's coming, the less we'll prioritize. Because we, we come to think that we have all the time in the world. And when we always think that we have more time than what we originally thought, our sense of urgency is, is decreases. And our sense of having knowing what our priorities are, are not so pressing because we have so much time. Hmm. But it's not a contemporary problem. It really isn't. Peter had to address it in his day. Uh, come with me to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. And I want to share with you here 2 Peter chapter 3. Verses 3 and 4. Notice what, what Peter wrote here. 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4. Knowing this first. That scoffers will come in the last days. Walking according to their own lusts. And saying. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep. All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Scoffers will come. Evidently, they believe in the Creator, but they are forgetting, forgetting, because that implies that they knew once. In other words, so these aren't people that are born without a knowledge of God or, or anything like that. No, they, they once had a knowledge of God. They once had a, a knowledge of the Creator. They knew where they came from, but now they are forgetting. But then he continues in verse 8, jumping over to verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this. Peter's saying, hey, don't forget this one thing. He says that with the Lord one day is as, as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. We're, we're going somewhere with this. We're talking about reprioritizing. And as, soon, as some count slackness, but he is long suffering towards us, not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to what? Repentance. To Repentance. I'm going to give you another perspective to thinking of reprioritizing. Because maybe it's just a lot more than just simply taking a step back and reevaluating, you know, what do you spend your most time doing and, and just kind of shuffling activities around and saying, okay, 
No, it's, it's, it, it's a little bit more, it goes a little deeper than that. Let me ask you, Paul, Peter wrote here that they, should all come to, that they should all come to repentance. How do you find repentance? How do you define repentance? I mean, you think of confession and repentance. Repentance, confession. Are they one and the same? Are they two? Or are they two? What's, 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 the, what's the distinction between the repentance and confession? How would you distinguish the two? Repentance is a change of behavior. Okay, okay. Okay, very good thoughts, very good thoughts. Um, they're all right. I, I remember um, listening to this perspective that confession is, is simply agreeing with God. Have you heard that before? It's agreeing with God. Because think about the various ways you could respond to conviction. You could, well, to begin with, deny, I didn't do it, right? You could excuse it, you know? Well, you know, it wasn't for so-and-so, and it wasn't for this or that. We can, um, what else? Deny it, excuse it, justify it. You know, we could justify our actions. We can, um, um, you know, rationalize it, saying, well, everyone's doing it, you know, right? You get all these things, but when you respond in all those different ways, you're still flat on your back. You're still flat on your back. Um, and it, things haven't changed at all since Adam and Eve's fall. Because um, if you look at how they responded to when they were, you know, confronted with their sin, um, they, they did those things. They excused it. They justified it. They blamed someone else, right? <laughs> and then and you, you, you can see there in Genesis, their last three words in each of their first responses to God are the same. You know what those last three words are? And I ate. <laughs> you know, and I ate. The woman you gave to me, da da da. And I ate. <laughs> and the, serp- the woman says, But the serpent, da da da. Da da. And I ate. <laughs> it's like, it's like, you know, why can't they have expressed those three words from the very get go, at the very beginning? Confession is agreeing with God that we ate, <laughs> that we did sin. And once we agree with God, God declares us clean. And we stand before God just as if I justified, never sinned. Just as if I had never sinned. See? And, and we then turn and walk down the path that leads to life. That's very true. Repentance. The Greek word trans, translated repent is defined this way. A change of mind. A change of mind. To think differently afterwards. That is to say, and this is where it comes all together. What I once thought was important, it's not as important anymore. I'm doing a 180, right? A change of mind. I repent or I reprioritize, right? Because once before my priority was going that way. But I've repented. I've now reprioritized. Now I'm going the other way. What really mattered in my life yesterday, it does not matter anymore today. Because I've repented. I've reprioritized. So I, I, just to, to give you a context, a call to repentance is also a call to reprioritize. So to reprioritize... It's a deep spiritual 
discipline and act in response to our standing with God. It's, it's a lot more than just simply, you know, um, simply evaluating what we do or don't do and doing it differently. You know, the Bible talks about friendship with the world and friendship with God. Prioritizing examines, you know, what, what are my friendships? Who are my friendships with? Because friendship with the world influences what will end up making a priority. And repentance compels us to reprioritize and turn back to a relationship with God. And so, it was the Apostle Peter who preached there in the book of Acts, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. And I really believe that that same message needs to be preached today, paraphrased with the words, Reprioritize in these last days and do what really matters the most. And so now, now we're going to examine our main passage and start looking at our priority number one. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And let's look at verses, the main passage is verses 7 to 11. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 7 to 11. This short passage here contains what I believe are the priorities inspired by the Holy Spirit that ought to be the priorities of the church and modern day disciples in the last days. So today we're going to look at priority number one, one of four. And we'll do so in the next four days. Beginning with today, priority number one, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Then in verse seven, he writes, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, because that's the case, because that's the setting, that's the context, that's your ultimate reality, because the end of things is at hand, Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Get serious about prayer. So as we begin to understand a little more what Peter is, is, is getting to there, what he's speaking about, I couldn't help but to notice that Peter himself seems to allude to that statement, um, paraphrasing it using different words. Notice with me, 1 Peter chapter 5. And notice verse 18. I find this very curious, very interesting. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 18. Uh, verse 8. Sorry about that. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8. And notice what he says. Be sober, he says. Be vigilant. Let's pause there for a moment. Be sober, be vigilant. Do you see it? To be serious is, in fact, to be sober. To be serious means to be sober. If you look up the word, the definition of serious, it, mean, it says there to be sober. And, and if you look up the definition of sober, some dictionaries will say to be serious. And so to be serious is to be sober. Then while he said in, ver, in chapter 4, verse 7, be watchful in your prayers, there in chapter, eight, verse, chapter 5, verse 8, he says, be vigilant. So you see, you see how he's using the same, the same um, imperatives, using different words, 
But then in verse 8, he adds why. Why we should be serious and watchful. Why we should be sober and vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so the context that Peter's getting at here is that the reason we we ought to be serious and watchful in our prayers is because there is an enemy who's like a roaring lion wanting to devour us. Now, why be serious? Well, first of all, as, as a starting point, I believe we ought to be serious, take it to heart, because the devil himself is serious about devouring you. We are, we are to be serious because the devil himself is serious about devouring you. We ought to be watchful because the devil himself is watchful for any opportunity to give, for you to give him ground, for you to give him ground to take ground in your life. In other words, the devil is serious and watchful himself. And the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And we all know the law of physics states that to withstand any opposing force, one must respond with an equal or greater resistance. Think about whether it's a mob coming towards you. If you're going to resist that mob, you have to respond with equal or greater resistance. Um, think about a flood. A dam breaks. The flood comes. You know, if you're going to with, withhold or withstand against that flood, you must be prepared to resist it with an equal or greater resistance. Uh, a herd of animals or whatever it may be. We better take it seriously or it will overtake us. And so the devil is serious about devouring you today. That's, that's what he is serious about. And so the question must be, would I characterize my prayer, would I characterize my prayer as withstanding his opposing force with equal or greater resistance in prayer? Would, would, I, would, I, would I conclude, would I agree that my intensity, my my devotion, my persistence in prayer is equal to or greater than the enemy's force or attempt to devour me in my life. You know, in 2001, Roger Dudley, he was an Andrews University professor, he conducted an 81-question survey, world survey. This went to all 13 world divisions in 2001. And he sent it out to 408 leaders of church, regional, and local units. And, uh, and they, in turn, surveyed their congregations. And this was across, again, across the 13 world divisions in the Adventist church. And you know what the surveys revealed? They revealed that less than 50% of Adventist church members around the world are actively involved in daily Bible study and prayer. Less than 50%. And you, I'm sure you can look it up online if you, if you search for these key words. You'll, you'll find the, the survey and the results of it. 
And it's, it was, it was, yes, it was frankly very, very alarming and very, very shocking, at least for many and for me it was too. Because are we not God's remnant people? And, it, and if we are, should we not be the ones that are the most devoted to Christ and connected in an abiding relationship with Him? But in light of that survey, it could be said that less than half of us here at camp meeting are currently involved in daily prayer and Bible study. And, you know, in light of that, of that finding, could it be said that half of us in this room right now, half of us in this room are actively involved in daily Bible study and prayer? And the question is, why? Why? Why is prayer not a priority? And what are your thoughts? I'd like to, to hear from you. I mean, you know, in your, you know, mingling and interaction with fellow believers and being in the church and observing, why, why is prayer not a priority for many people? What do you think? What do you think? Too busy? Okay, too busy. Too tired? Okay, we don't realize it's a necessity. What do you think? We're not disciplined. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and if you're like me, though, if I if I intend to wake up early, that means I have to go to bed early, <laughs> because because if I don't, it's not doesn't easily happen. You know, the the flesh is willing, right? But or the other way around, <laughs> the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, it's tired. Yeah, Every, everything you said is, is spot on. It's true. It's very true. These are the reasons why we don't pray. And they could be all summed up. Everything you just said could be all summed up in one general encompassing reason, that it's, it's not a priority. It's not a priority. That's, that's, that's the bottom line. I mean, we can have all these different reasons, but the common denominator there, it's not a priority. It's not a priority. You know, and, and we live in a society that, that where we're programmed to expect everything instantly. Why? We want everything fast, right? We expect results fast. We expect, you know, the, 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 the outcome, the consequence, or the fruit of whatever we, we, we put effort into to happen to be delivered to us quickly. Isn't that the truth? You know? Everything. It's, it, I mean, we have instant messenger, instant hot water, instant downloads, instant noodles, instant cures, instant cash, uh, fast food, fast lanes, fast internet, fast service. I mean, the list goes on. There was over a million hits when I, when I, when I typed in, you know, fast or instant. I mean, it just goes on and on, on and on. And I wonder, and I wonder because, you know, if we live in that kind of mindset or that kind of context, could it be, could it be? Does our expectation of instant or a fast response to prayer sometimes cause us to question our faith, which then leads to being discouraged you know, from praying or from continuing to pray? Could it be that we are just simply impatient to see, to see answers to prayer? 
We're impatient to see the, the outcome of our prayer. Show me the money. Show me, show me that prayer is making a difference. And because we don't see it, we don't see it, we don't see it, we, we subconsciously say, think or conclude, this does not work. This doesn't, this doesn't do it. This doesn't do it. I pray nothing happens. What's, what's, what's other options? What's other, I'm going to find other ways. And we don't, we, don't sub, we don't consciously process this kind of reasoning. We just subconsciously kind of start behaving that way. This isn't working. I'm going to look for other ways to make it work for, for there to be a solution to my problem. Hmm. For example, let me ask you, do you believe that God heals? Yes or no? Yes, of course he heals. But my question is, do you believe that God heals or that God answers prayer for healing? Okay, okay. Hmm. And as I look at the Gospels for, for examples of, of healing in response to a request, I do find different stories. And some are, some are distinct from others. You'll find a category of stories where Jesus heals immediately, instant, fast. A blind man on the streets of Jericho begged him, and the healing was immediately. Mark uses that word immediately. A blind man on the streets of Bethsaida begged him. Uses that same word, pleaded, begged, same word as the man in Jericho. But this time, Jesus took him on a long walk. Yeah, literally, took him by the hand and they walked out of the city. Then he spit on his eyes. And to add on top of that, complete restoration didn't even come until a second touch. Remember, it was a partial healing. He saw men walking like trees. And then it wasn't until a second touch that the man was able to see again. What do we see here? Ah, healing took place, but it came hours later. Came hours later. Hmm. And then there's another man who had a, an eye ailment. He could not see. He was possibly going blind. We don't have specific evidence of that, but it could be. And he begged God three times. Three times. And Jesus answered and said, you're not, I, you won't be healed because my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. He was not healed. He was not healed. And then you have countless blind men who went to the grave without sight. But the gentle healer promises that we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Do, do you see it? Do you see it? And in all the instances, and there's more than one story for each category, we see examples of how, yes, at the end of the day, Jesus heals. But he doesn't always heal at the, at the same pace or at the, with the same timing. With the same timing. That's because prayer is an act of trust. Prayer is an act of trust. Of trust in what and who and why. Trust that God, and being fully convinced, that God is able to do. 
God is able to do what He has promised, and His timing is always perfect. We can trust God. God heals. God heals. And it takes persistence, bathed with trust, that God is able. Prayer also places us on the platform where character development takes place. Kind of ties it to our original quote of Ellen G. White, where she says, a revival of true godliness. Prayer, prayer is the platform where that takes place, where character development takes place. It is in prayer that we are actually opened up for God to be able to literally transform our character. Prayer. Ellen G. White in Steps to Christ, let me share a quote with you. Steps to Christ, page 98, has this to say. Steps to Christ, page 98. Unceasing prayer, unceasing prayer, is the unbroken union of the soul with God. So that life from God flows into our life. And from our life, purity and holiness flow back to God. You know what that just described? Sanctification, which is the life of Christ, the life of God flowing into our life. And it's, and it's that unceasing prayer that permits that life from God to flow into us. So in other words, prayer is crucial. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a necessary component in character development. How we begin to see why you know, true, a revival of true godliness is impossible without prayer, which is why it obviously ought to be a priority to be serious and watchful in our prayers. And there's no, there's no such thing as a fast track to godliness. We, we, you know, we, we, we tend to think that because we have all the time in the world that we have time. We have time to be holy. We have time for God to do His work in us to transform our characters and make us more like Christ. We have time. We have time. I, 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 I got to attend to this and I got to attend to that. But we have time. And we think to ourselves that we'll just take the fast track to godliness. Just before the trumpet sound, we'll, we'll just get real serious. Or when we really start to see the signs of the latter rain, in the last days or the or the 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 the, the national sunday law coming in and, and revelation 13 really being fulfilled that's when i'll put into fifth gear and really really get on the fast track to get right with god and to get holy you know there's a hymn that reminds us take time to be holy I like that lyric, the lyrics of that one stanza say this, Take time to be holy, the world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. Character change and development takes time. It takes time. And if we think that the coming of Christ will change our characters, we are mistaken. When Christ returns, His coming will only fix our characters forever, beyond all change. When He comes, let the righteous be righteous still, as is. 
Let the filthy be, or yeah, let the filthy be filthy. Still, as is, there is no fast track. We must take time to be holy. And guess what? Prayer is the discipline that one must practice in taking time to be holy. I ran the Colfax Marathon this last month, May 20. Any, any marathon runners here or long distance runners? Have you? You know the feeling, right? Oh, you know that feeling. Ah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's something surreal and, and, and enchanting about standing among runners, all facing the same direction, standing there, surrounded by hundreds of runners, while the sun is starting to come up because it's usually early in the morning that we all gather behind that start line and, and prepare to race. We have our watches set, ready to press start. As soon as we, soon as we cross that start line, the national anthem is sung and everyone's getting all hyped up. You can see everyone's just, you can see the adrenaline beginning to flow. And, and as enrapturing as that might be, if I haven't taken time to train properly, it's not going to be a very pleasant experience. <laughs> Even with training, it's not going to be a pleasant experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah but how, so much more. They say that in every marathon, in every marathon, about 10 to 15% don't finish. They started, but they don't finish. And I remember one time waiting online for the, for the Porter John there and and uh, with races, there's there's a hundred in line ready. You know, you thought camp meeting was bad, but but in races, it's ten times worse. And I remember listening over here in conversations around me of people literally bragging, you know, saying, you know, I haven't trained. You know, I, I'm doing this without any training. <laughs> you know, like they think like it's like the most amusing thing. You know, but uh, but I, what's your guess? I think that they're among the ten. 10 to 15 (laughs) percent, most likely, Um, because I see as I'm running often, I'll see in mile 20 and beyond. Oh, I'll I'll see. I'll see the stretchers. I'll see an ambulance or two with stretchers carrying runners because, well, they didn't train. And it's not what you're wearing. You know, you could be wearing tiny shorts or or $150 running shoes. But all these things that you're putting on won't get you across the finish line. And if I claim to be a marathon runner, I'm expected to run, to train for. And if we claim to be disciples of God, Jesus expects us to pray. He expects us to pray. In Matthew chapter 6, you know this this well-known passage um, chapter in Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, we have Jesus expounding on spiritual disciplines and he talks about prayer. And there in Matthew chapter 6, you'll notice a, repeat, a, a phrase that Jesus keeps repeating and repeating and repeating. Um, just quickly here in verse 5, when you pray, da, 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 da. verse 6, but, but you, when you pray, verse 7, but when you pray, verse 9, in this manner, therefore, pray. Do you see, do you see what, what Jesus, how Jesus, what, the words Jesus chooses to, chooses to use? There's an expectation. When you pray, never uses the word if, but when. 
So when I go on a long trip and I leave home and, and my wife says goodbye, my kids say goodbye, she expects me to call numerous times. She expects me to call when I get to my destination. And she'll tell me, hey, uh, I have something I want to talk to you about, but I'll tell you when you call. Because she knows that I will. Or she'll say something like, hey, oh, you forgot to tell me about that. Hey, don't worry about it. Just go, don't forget to tell me when you call. You notice that it speaks confidence, not doubt, but confidence. It's, it's a confident expectation that I will call. And when I look at the Greek word translated pray, in most of the, the uses of the word uh, in the Gospels, in the, when you see the English word pray, the Greek word often is tetomai, tetomai. That's the word, Greek word translated pray. And it means to earnestly plea, earnestly plea. It's a strong word. And let me share with you just a couple of, of verses in the Bible that uses that Greek word detomai to, to speak of prayer. In Luke chapter 5, verse 12. Um, look at Luke chapter 5, verse 12. In Luke chapter 5, verse 12, this is, this is interesting. It says... And it happened when he was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of what? Of leprosy. Saw Jesus. And he fell on his face and detomai, detomai. He begged him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He detomai. Here's a man who begged God, pleaded with him. In other, in other passages, prayer, or he prayed. Prayer, prayer is used as the translation for that. It's the same word. But think about this. Here's a man full of leprosy, and he's begging to God. And my question for, for a personal application is this. When was the last time you prayed as if you needed a miracle to be healed from an incurable disease. When was the last time that you were, that you were earnest, so earnest as if you were sick with an illness that was terminal, an in incurable disease? Hmm. I'm not sure I pray like that very much. I want to. I need to. By God's grace, I will. Here's another example. Luke 8, 38. Look at Luke 8, 38. Here's another example of the word detomai. Luke 8, 38. It says, Now the man from whom the demons had departed, detomai, there's that rude word, detomai, begged him that he might be with him that he might be with him. Here's a man who had been demon-possessed, and now he's begging God, Jesus, I want to be with you. I want to be close to you. I want to be by your side. How, how many of us start the day that way? When was the last time you prayed to remain in the presence of Jesus as if you had just been set free from demons? 
do you, do you see that intensity there? That's there. It's, 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 it's a question of, you know, have I come, have I come to the point where to pray is, is just a very, you know, casual, indifferent, you know, kind of experience that, that simply, you know, I'm communicating to God, but, but the sense of urgency, the sense of crisis, the sense of, the sense of, of life or death, it's not there. But one thing does give me hope as I think about all these things, and that is this, that prayer can be and is learned. Prayer is something learned. Prayer is something that, that you can actually develop and grow in and, and, and exercise and mature in progressively, gradually. You, you can be able to look back and, and think about your life, how your prayer life was a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, and today be able to see a very distinct level of growth or maturity in that journey. It is, it is something that you learn. It is something that you can actually discipline yourself to improve in and to mature in. And so what are some practical ways to actually learn to pray as Jesus prayed? Because don't forget that story in Luke 11.1 1, that the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, right? Teach us to pray. And, and I can't help but to notice, and, I, and I'm not sure if Ellen G. White actually brings this, brings this to light, and that is that, that Jesus is praying visibly. He's in, he's in a place where he's, he's, he's distanced himself somewhat to pray to God, but he can still be seen by his disciples at a distance. And they actually watch him pray. And they observe him praying. And that is what ignites within them an earnest desire to, to learn. Because Jesus is praying like they have never prayed before. So when Jesus completes his prayer and comes to them, that's when they say, Jesus, we've been watching you. Teach us, please, to pray. So what are some practices? I want to share with you a few, but, but I want to hear from you first. What are, would you be willing the next minute or two? What, what practices have taught you to pray more earnestly? We, we learn from one another. That's why we're the church that assemble together and, and, and learn and encourage one another as we see the day approaching. But what has taught you to pray more earnestly? Maybe what you share will be just what some of us need to hear. So, so she's saying that praying specifically for specific people, specific names, the more specific you have been, the more you recognize specific answers to specific prayers. If we, if we just keep it very, very you know, broad and general... We'll, we'll miss answers because we never identified, you know, the, the way that, that we need a resolution or, or a response to that prayer. So thank you for sharing that. So it's being able to recognize desperate situations and, and being able to recognize those things and be able to realize that because this is desperate, there is no one else, nothing else 
I can do. There's nothing else I can do. There's no one else I can go to but God, right? So as we, as we go through our days, yes, we believe in prayer. Yes, I take time to pray. But as we reprioritize in these last days, you know, maybe some of us ought to say, Lord, I need to partner. I need to, I need to intentionally partner with someone that I can pray together with. There's something powerful about that. After all, when the disciple says, Jesus, teach us to pray, did you notice how he modeled a prayer, right? And how did he begin by saying, by praying? Did he say, my Father which art in heaven? What did he say? Our Father. Do you see what that would imply? That would imply that prayer, ideally, ought to be done together with others. Praying our Father. Hmm. That's something really powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Any other thoughts? Yeah? Mm. Journaling. And, and, and what, what does journaling do that not journaling, not journaling wouldn't be able to do? Like, what, what, is, what are some of the things you, the benefits you've reaped from actually journaling? Helps you focus. Okay. Okay. Because not only are you thinking what your needs are or your praises are, but you're actually visibly reading them as you write them. Okay, it keeps you focused. What else? Oh, because he can refer back to, back to the entries of the past and see how God led you in the past. That's great. Any other, any other benefits to journaling? Yeah, yeah. Being able to just really, really, you know, be thoughtful of, because as you're writing, you're thoughtful of the words that you're going to use. And, and so you, you identify with certain descriptive words that, that otherwise you wouldn't really think of. Uh-huh. Awesome, awesome. I hope everyone's writing these down because all these ideas that we've been sharing is part of reprioritizing because we all, we all agree that we need to pray. We all agree on that. But we need to, repri- to reprioritize prayer to put it in a place where we truly engage with God in prayer on a constant, unceasing basis. We have to put these things into practice. Otherwise, they just won't happen. You know, if you ever feel like you just don't feel like praying, okay? Well, guess what? What you, what you could do? Tell God why you don't feel like praying. Think about that. Tell God why, God, this is why I don't feel like praying. Because, and, and just be transparent with Him. And what, what would you be doing? You'll be praying. As, as you tell Him why you don't want to pray, you know? You know, being Real with God, being transparent. Yeah. I mean, look at, look at the prayers. Talking about scripture, prayers in scripture. They were, they were just so real with God. They're saying, God, you can kill me right now. You know, they were, they were just really raw with God. They, they were sometimes angry with God. And we ought to be the same way, being transparent with God. Some of the things that I've discovered over the years as well is, one, is you learn to pray you learn to pay by praying. You learn to pay by praying. Now, uh, yeah, of course, that's obvious, but wait a minute. You learn to pay by praying. What I mean by that is being able to find yourself praying when you don't feel like praying, praying when you feel like praying, and praying constantly without ceasing. We'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But, you know, 
one way that I've actually learned to actually discipline myself to be engaged in prayer is by actually timing myself. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. We hear a piano student saying, you know, I'm going to discipline myself to practice for 30 minutes. You hear, you hear swimmers say, I'm going to discipline myself to swim 20 laps. Um, you hear runners say, I'm going to discipline myself to run 10 miles. If, if that's what it takes for these men and women to discipline themselves, to put into practice what it's going to take for them to accomplish or fulfill or, or reach the end result or the finish line or the destination that they want to reach, why not discipline ourselves to pray for a predetermined amount of time? And I've often have taken my, my, my phone and I'll, said, I'll go to stopwatch and I say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for 30 minutes. And as, just before I close my eyes, start. And I pray. And, you know, every once in a while, I'll look, 18 minutes. Okay, I've got to keep praying. You know, then I look, 27 minutes. Okay, I look. And then the more, I, the more I've done this, there have been times where the first glance at it is, oh, 20, oh, 28 minutes. Wow, that was fast. <laughs> that time went by fast. And, and then after a while, it's like, oh, I got a couple minutes left. Then, amen. And then I look, 45 minutes. Oops. You know, I went for the, you see what I'm saying? It's like, I, but it started by being intentional. I'm going to be praying for 30 minutes and sticking to it. Sticking to it. I got time and I need to pray. Um, and what does it mean to pray without ceasing? Do we need to be on our knees, eyes closed, hand together? No, of course not, right? What has been your most, you know, practical, you know, um, understanding of that, of that phrase, unceasing prayer, pray without ceasing? What does that mean to you? I've heard a mindset, and that's what I believe it really is as well. Um, because think about this. There's been times where I'm in my home office at home. Heidi's not home yet, but I'm home. And, um, and I know she's not home because I'm in, at home by myself. But then she arrives. And I might hear her come into through the garage door. I'm home. And then she's in. And uh, mo- a few moments go by. And I don't see Heidi. I don't, I don't hear Heidi. But I have that sense that she's home. You know, she's, she, her presence is in this house. Again, I don't hear her. I don't see her. But, but I know that she's here. She's in, within reach. It's, it's, could it not be just simply sensing the presence of God wherever you are? At any time and any place. When I walk into Walmart, God is with me. When I walk into a classroom, God is with me. When I step into the cafeteria, the presence of God is with me. Just sensing, recognizing the presence of God with you, Jesus with me, he is there with you. That is being in a state of prayer. Imagine being able to reach a state of of existence, of mindset, where at any waking moment, where regardless of where I am and what I'm doing, I sense the presence of God with me just as, as much as I sense my wife's presence when she arrives home and yet have yet to see her or hear her, but I know she's there with me. Amen? You know, and, and coming to that point, and some of the most godly people I know are those that 
have Jesus with them wherever they go. Get post-its. If you want to teach young people how to exercise that kind of mindset, take post-its, uh, sticker post-its, write Jesus with me 20 times, and then go around the house and place that post-it at different places around the house, under your television set, on your computer screen, on your stereo, in your refrigerator, on the bathroom sink, on the bedroom, on the, on the dresser, you know, different places. Every time your eyes set sight on one of those posts of Jesus with me, at that very moment, just believe that Jesus is with you and his presence is right there by your side. And, 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 and every time you see that, you practice that thought. And then after 21 days, three weeks, you remove all those, but the mind, the thought, stays and you will be reminded of the presence of Jesus intentionally everywhere you go as you exercise your minds towards that. In closing, I'm going to take you one verse in closing as we as we come to Colossians chapter 4 verse 2 and this with this thought we'll we'll conclude Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. And Paul wrote this, continue Earnestly, he says, in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. The word where it says to attend constantly, to continue earnestly, that means to devote yourselves to. To devote yourselves to. And when you devote yourself to something, it's a priority. And when you make something a priority, when you will sacrifice for it, when you will give it time to it, regardless of how much of how much you have to do, you know you are devoted to it. And today, I want to challenge you. I want to appeal to you that you will take all these practical exercises that you heard in the last 15 minutes that you will think to yourself about the, the, about the prayer of the heart that came from men who were dying of leprosy, from men who had just been set free from demons, and by the grace of God, pray to him, talk to him, plead with him, detomai, beg him, and talk to him as if you were in those same circumstances, and reprioritize by actually taking time to put these things into practice. For they will not happen. You're always going to find something else and something more to do. Believe me, you will. So we have to reprioritize and take our prayer life to the next level. What do you say? Let's, let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we could, we could hear about prayer. We can... We can take notes about prayer we can we can talk about prayer but by the grace of God and with the grace as sufficient with the power of grace and with the the strength of the Holy Spirit I pray in the name of Jesus Lord that you would drop us down to our knees that you will give us the mind of Christ and that we would learn to pray in a way that we never have before by the grace of God, Lord, in the next 24 hours before we meet here again tomorrow, may we have put into practice 
some of these things and may our prayer life literally be strengthened and mature even within the next 24 hours. Thank you, Lord, for answering our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.